is an illicit radio program. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome. Got a selection of good things on sale, stranger. And welcome to episode 4 of the Stockroom. I have with me both returning guests, David Weiner and Martin Adelsmith. I will first let David introduce himself on this Friday the 13th as we record before discussing Blade Runner 2049, the topic of today. Do fanboys dream of an eclectic feat? David. <laughs> <laughs> and you still laugh second time round. It's good. It's a good title, and it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be back, and uh, I'm a huge fan of Blade Runner, so I can't wait to talk about it. Um, I uh, am the creator of uh, It Came From Blog. It came from blog.com, and uh, I am the uh, former executive editor of Famous Monsters Magazine, and I worked a long time at Entertainment Tonight, the TV show in America. And so uh, this is this is my bread and butter. Excellent stuff. Martin, who are you? Why should we care? Hi, I'm Martin Edel Smith. I am the author of the horror series, The Spirals of Danu. I've been into certainly the, the world of Blade Runner for a very long time. And having watched Blade Runner 2049, I think we've got a lot to talk about tonight. Excellent stuff. And I feel the exact same way. I hope we'll have a great discussion. I know we had a little bit of technical difficulties there a minute ago, guys, so the little intro mightn't be as powerful as it might be, but we do have a lot to say. I was just saying earlier, the two guys are like two dogs on a leash ready to get at it. <laughs> I was barely getting a word in sideways, but uh, we're here now, so I just want to ask, we'll start with David, what was your sort of first impressions, just a short feeling of how you got walking out of the film? Uh, of 2049? Of 2049, yes. Yes, yes. 2049, I was uh, cautiously optimistic. I've been a huge fan of Blade Runner. Uh, I do not believe it needed a sequel. Uh, but these days in Hollywood, everything has to have a sequel or a remake or a reboot. So it's inevitable. So you either accept or reject. And so I came into this very cautiously optimistic and... Uh, I, I knew I would see it regardless, even if the reviews were terrible, because I love Blade Runner so much. And so I'm pleased to report that I thought this was um, a film that was better than it needed to be, better than it better than it should have been, not needed to be. And uh, 
I, I definitely have my nitpicks and caveats, but I really, 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 really uh, enjoyed it overall, much more than the disappointment I expected. Excellent. Now, I would like to cut into the middle here, but I won't. But we let Martin go first. <laughs> <laughs> so my first impression is that this is a good movie. And that, that probably needs to be said. I've watched it twice in the last week. And when I ever adjust my score on a movie, it usually goes down. Blade Runner 2049 is one of the very rare exceptions that my score has gone up. We were talking a little bit offline. And unlike David, I was not impressed with the cinematography i was not impressed with the soundscape however what has given me just pages and pages of notes and thoughts is the storyline and i think that it was an incredibly detailed storyline i mean it has to be i mean the film's over 160 minutes long but at no time in that nearly three hour period was i bored okay right and I think, you know, there's some people who are going, oh, Blade Runner 2049 minutes long. Because, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but you know, this the, the, ultimately this is a good movie. I think it's a thinking man's movie. Oh, Don't... sorry. Are, are you telling me you're too good for us? Because I'm well, going to cut in. I'm going to cut in. I didn't. I didn't we, enjoy it as much as you did, I think. <laughs> That's why you're on my show. <laughs> <laughs> I want to jump in real quick before you go uh, talk about it, Richard, in that I think if you're going to wait 35 years for a, a, a sequel to come about, uh, by all means, give it a little more time to breathe and tell a good story. And I don't think it was that long. I think it was just the right amount of time. Had it been maybe 20 minutes more, I might have started to groan, though. Yeah. Okay, right. I am I think I'm in between the two of you, but leaning more on Camp David there. I loved the cinematography. Camp, there was Camp some Camp David coming out the closet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is National Getting Out of the Closet Day uh, today, guys. Friday the thirteenth, also, <laughs> as we record. So I I love the cinematography. I thought there was a little bit of masturbation going on with the establishing shots. I think that's why the movie was maybe forty-five minutes too long, in my opinion. I, I did like the first two acts and I think it kind of fell flat in its face in the third act when they started crowbarring in uh, plot points but that is for a little bit later I'm just going to follow up now uh, with a question what does Blade Runner mean to you and what kind of how did you arrive at watching Blade Runner 2049 David we'll start with yourself uh, well I was old enough for to be around the first round when Blade Runner came out and uh I did not see it in the theater, and I cannot remember the specifics why. Uh, I believe I was away at school, and so I didn't quite have that opportunity because I would have made the effort to go because I love Harrison Ford, I love Ridley Scott back in those days as well. But I remember thinking to myself, wow, I really do not like Harrison Ford's haircut. Maybe that's a deterrent, I'm not quite sure. But uh, <laughs> although, the, although the film itself did not do that well at the box office, it's considered a failure the first time around. They did not fail to market it effectively, and uh, I knew all about it. There were there were a couple toys, there were uh, poster books and, and souvenir books, and there was advertisements everywhere and posters and so on and so forth. And so, um, having been such a huge fan of Alien and of course Harrison Ford, 
uh, it was a no-brainer to see this movie. And so I did see it, and I did enjoy it, but it's taken me uh, many years and many viewings to, to regard it as a masterpiece. Um, and we could talk about the different iterations and versions and director's cuts later, but uh, I'll simply say that uh, where Blade Runner stands, um, I believe that the first theatrical version is a bit clunky, especially with that voiceover narration that sort of uh, explains everything, and it's it is unnecessary. I have a little something to say on that later, unless yeah, I can talk about it now and say I think if you watch it with the narration, it's kind of you feel okay, that's maybe a bit unnecessary and then you watch future iterations without it but you already know that exposition so it's a better version so if you're going in fresh because my girlfriend never saw Blade Runner and I showed her the director's cut and she was like what the fuck is going on <laughs> so I think maybe that's a point that could be valid I'm not too sure well that's the thing is you have to look at it through the lens of you know hindsight is 2020 and it's a it's an it's a complicated uh, view because when it first came out, they the studio Warner Brothers said you must hit people over the head with what's going on because they will be lost because we're lost. So uh, Ridley Scott begrudgingly did that. Um, I enjoy the versions that uh, that that take the the uh, narrative out the the over, you know voiceover narration. Yet I don't like the fact that they were tweaked to uh, declare Rick Deckard a more specifically a replicant versus leaving it up in the air and uh as that stands and then we'll obviously dive into everything else i just really enjoyed the fact that in blade runner you don't know if he's a replicant or not i didn't believe he was a replicant i thought he was a man who fell in love with a robot and uh i didn't need to careful wordplay there on robot we're not too sure yes I did not question whether or not uh, he was a replicant or not, and I didn't think it was uh, crucial to the plot. Um, and I think that's what made it interesting. Okay, Martin, you're two minutes start now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I I didn't see the original Blade Runner when it came out in the cinema. I think I saw a VHS copy perhaps towards the end of the 80s, 88, 89, but it would have been the theatrical cut. At the time, I wasn't impressed. Um, like you said, the, we spoke about the narration. There's the god-awful ending, which is just pure saccharine for the theatrical cut. Yeah, horrendous. In, in, in the middle 90s, I went through a noir stage, which was sort of very, very sort of... That's uh, a big impression on me. And these were movies like The Crow and Dark City. And part of that cycle, I'm guessing it's now maybe sort of 98, 99, um, I saw the director's cut. And this was, a, to me, a very different movie because we got rid of the voiceover, we got rid of the saccharine ending, but we inserted the unicorn scenes. And the question of what Deckard is became much more to the forefront. It was a theme that was almost remixed and remastered and blended to sort of come out much more within the movie. And I think the movie I saw after that was The Matrix. So there's all these ideas of identity and who we are and exactly what is the nature of reality around us. And... I was when you lost your mind and started writing. <laughs> I, I don't know if I've ever had a mind, my friend. <laughs> Just strange things go on up here. And so... I, 
I do have issues with sort of the Blade Runner franchise. I'm not really into this 10,000 different uh, iterations that we've got. If people ask me what is my Blade Runner movie, then I refer to that director's cut. Would you say, right, given that there is so many versions and there's the unreliable narration aspect, kind of you could even argue and then not to jump the gun, but they did very much play with the ambiguity of Deckard again in the new movie. Do you think there isn't oh, actually a definitive version? Maybe it's well, all... Here's, here's the thing, and David will probably corroborate this. I think that if you look for it, I think the new movie does answer the question of the nature of Deckard. But I want to be very, very clear about this. Many people will uh, highlight the scene with Jared Leto. And to re for anyone... Who, <laughs> he, he, yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, I fucking hate Jared Leto. And everything he does is shit. I just so, say Jared Leto. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't like Jared Leto. But there is a scene where uh, there is ja uh, Neander Wallace, who is played by Jared Leto, and this is the guy who is the new Tyrell Corporation. He's got hold of Deckard, and he speculates that Deckard was programmed to fall in love with Rachel to conceive a child. And Yeah, but know, on a dime, uh, he turns around and says, well, you could have just exactly. been a man. Uh, yeah, it's exactly. But what I'm saying is that people will hold up that scene as you know for whichever side of the argument i think that the movie does answer the question but it's not in that scene okay and, that's, that's for a little bit later i'm gonna right, okay. i'm gonna cut on but, before but just just to sort of get a bit of a teaser in here and this may be something that david will, will corroborate hollywood has rhymes and it's rhymes within sequels so if you think about the star wars franchise anakin loses a hand uh, luke loses a hand in raiders of the lost ark he goes for his gun and shoots the big guy in uh, temple of doom he goes for his gun to shoot the big guy but the gun's not there there are certain rhymes that happen between the originals and sequels and i think that there is a certain rhyme within Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 that does answer the question. Okay, I'm looking forward to hearing it in our discussion little segment. <laughs> <laughs> David, I will not necessarily corroborate. We need to but, 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 David, do you think that Hollywood does rhymes between originals and sequels? Absolutely, yeah. I, I would call it a callback, but absolutely, yeah. That's very intentional, and it, it, it's, it's playing on the audience's knowledge and expectations. Uh, and, and oftentimes it's like breaking the fourth wall uh, in a virtual sense. Right. And so, so yeah, this movie, by, by virtue of the fact that it exists at all, it is, it is absolutely required not only to, uh, to stand by the canon of the storyline, but also call back to the original. And uh, again, we'll get to it later, but uh, even the music cues at the end, uh, where, where Ryan Gosling is on the steps, yeah, yeah. It's the same music cues as you know Roy ba Roy Batty's last days, last moments uh, at the end of the original uh, Blade Runner. So there are callbacks, there are rhymes throughout, and so uh, it's a question of, and this is also a larger question: uh, Are they playing to the audience and their knowledge and their expectations, or are they being true to the storyline, or are they are betraying themselves by way of that? Okay. And so it's all about context. Right. 
very quickly and we'll move on into the meat of it my relationship with Blade Runner 10 minutes ago I asked this question <laughs> Richard Richard we haven't asked you tell us, yeah. tell us what, what is your relationship to Blade Runner so guys I'm a little bit younger than you I first came into this uh, I was got Empire Magazine they had a 25th anniversary for Blade Runner and promoting the final cut and they had lots of interviews and kind of background scenes and how everyone felt about it and I was intrigued got the DVD fell in love with the movie and all its iterations and immersed myself in the lore kind of went on a bit of a bender like maybe Martin did and really fell in love with cinema after that movie oh Uh, wow so that was great for me and when I heard this was coming out we mentioned off air the horrendously looking sort of nearly fan posters that they made for the movie and I was very worried about what they were going to do with it. God, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. Like, it looked oh, like you mean really... the fact that Harrison Ford didn't go to wardrobe before they took the picture? <laughs> no, but it, it, <laughs> it just looked it, like it, a bad it, Photoshop. It, it, like, it, they were just it, planting Ryan Gosling in the middle of the snow. They were putting T-shirt man in a, a fucking sandstorm. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? It, it, so it, 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 was, it was absolutely awful. But absolutely awful, that first post that came out. We digress. We I, we had another question, but I'm going to skip that because it kind of doubles they, up. They, they took that Harrison Ford thing. for That was for a different Mars movie. But yeah, it must have been. It no, it was absolutely shocking. But uh, where were we? We can probably start getting into the bones of the discussion, I guess. I think we can kind of start from the start. What did, what did we kind of think of the opening scene with uh, Dave Potesta? Do you think the marketing did him any justice? David? I will preface this whole conversation with the way I approach movies these days is, uh, and you asked this because of the marketing. I have, uh, at this stage in my life, rejected most of the marketing, at least when it comes to trailers. Uh, I do not pay attention, other than the fact that I know the movie is being made, the movie is coming out, and the release date. And then you see posters and the trailers start rolling out. I do everything I can, whether it's stills that are being passed around to the trailer itself. I no longer, I, I, I want to preserve the surprise of a story as it unfolds naturally. Mm. And so I, I sometimes can't help myself and I will watch half of the first teaser or the first teaser. But I, by law to myself, will never watch any other trailers because they give it all away. And yep. I know that for a fact. That being said, I didn't even know David Batista was in this movie. Okay, that's fair. And so that was a... Yeah, fair, that, that's a bit harsh. Bit harsh. David Batista, he's right there in the opening five no, 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 no. I'm saying prior to the opening... Oh, I see. Sorry, I apologize. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> he made no dent on me whatsoever. I didn't even realize he was in this film. <laughs> hey, we're, we're, we're talking about, uh, I don't know, Pretty Woman, but, right? So, uh, yeah. um, he has got a higher billing than Jared, than Jared Leto. So, yeah, so so Dave Bautista, uh, for a moment, was a bit distracting because I was like, oh, I didn't even know he was in this film. Okay, he's, you know, I can't see him as the character until he put on those awesome tiny little glasses. And I said, oh, it's a nice little character touch, you know, a giant man with tiny glasses. Mm. Um, well, sorry, no, he... sorry to cut across. What I mean sort of by marketing is he had a whole third of the prequel shorts that they brought out. He had a full short dedicated to himself so i thought maybe it was a little bit of an injustice that the short was longer than his scene in the movie well that's another whole conversation but i will touch on that in saying that 
I didn't look at any of those prequels intentionally because I wanted to watch the movie itself. And I didn't, and, and the movie, a movie is made to be theatrically distributed and you know, short of watching Dune and they hand you a glossary before you walk in, which is something that they did back in the day. Uh, you go in and the movie should stand on its own merits. And so, yes, there are three prequel shorts that sort of expand this universe, world build a little more, provide a lot more context to the world that you're uh, experiencing in Blade Runner 2049 on the big screen. But I saw that movie without any of that uh, intentionally. And while I watched that prequel and I saw there's a whole storyline that explains how um, Ryan Gosling's K was able to find him in, in the first place, which was not explained in the movie, uh, it still raised more questions to me uh, in terms of the coincidental nature or lack thereof of the clues that Kay finds when he has to capture slash retire uh, Dave Bautista's replicant. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole whole tangent we're obviously going to get into at a certain point. But yeah. to answer your question, what did I think of Dave Bautista? Bautista, I thought that was a great scene. I think he's a formidable force. I thought he was a great first replicant to grapple with, uh, and I was fine with the fact that he was the first one in and the first one out. Great. Martin, your thoughts on that opening scene? How did it set the tone for you for the movie? So, we, we probably have to take a step back to Ridley Scott's last movie that I saw, which was Alien Covenant. Um, ah. Now, my views on this movie are well known, but for those who don't know, it's shit. <laughs> One of the many, many problems with the Alien Covenant movie is that there is a short on uh, the yes, internet yep, yep. called I think it's called The Last Supper something yeah, like you're that right there. Yep. and it is nearly critical that you see this short before you see Alien Covenant Yeah. because throughout Alien Covenant you get people dying and exploding and whatever else and you get these strange reactions and disproportionate reactions and then you learn that the reason they're reacting is because they're husband and wife and you have to have seen The Last Supper in order to understand this. And re really, The Last Supper should have been part of Alien Covenant. It wouldn't have saved the film, but it certainly would have helped in that case. So, so when I heard that, you know, once again, you know, I know that Ridley Scott is down as the executive producer. There are scenes that I would put money that he was on set for whispering in Denise Villeneuve's ear going, no, you want to do it this way, more orange, more orange. And <laughs> I, I, he, he, he was more than an, exec, than an executive producer in this movie. So when yeah, I saw definitely that, say that, so. that when, when, there were, when I saw that there were shorts, I was like, look, I do want to enjoy this movie. So I am going to see the shorts in case there's anything in there critical to me understanding Blade Runner 2049. You're demonstrating a learning curve after Alien Covenant. Yes. Yeah, no, I'd say, even, even at my advanced age, new old dogs can learn new tricks. <laughs> I, I guess that the, 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 so there is one anime and then there are two live actions. Yeah. I enjoyed them. I do not think it is critical to see them to understand what is going on in Blade Runner 2049. The third short is with Dave, Dave. Yeah, Jared uh, with, Leto. 
No, he he was the second one. He was the second one. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the third one is uh, Dave Batista as Sapper Morton. And it is an interesting preface to the Blade Runner 2049 movie. You're not exactly sure what the time frame is, but it's days if not weeks but certainly no more than that before the opening scene it's it's of... the it's the year it's the yeah exactly. year previous yeah, yeah. It's year previous. so it, it's you know it, i was going to say it's the year previous because then denise they say it's sorry 2048 yeah yet, yeah yeah like, you're right just il- yeah. you just illustrated at the end of that prequel uh, that 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 short they say you know i know where he is yes it's yeah but, hey i know right it, it, just one second on that. If it was the year before, how in the world did he have a well-established protein farm if he was literally just running from the city out? Or do you think he went because from the just, farm so, in because he was giving grubs to the he, guy he for was, money? Yeah, he was. So he was. So he's he's genetically engineering the these grubs as a source of protein, which they presumably boil up in vats, kind of Soylent Green style, and he goes into the city, sells them. And obviously, there's the. He's got friends there, this mother and daughter who he saves from a gang, drops his shit, and that's how he gets found out. Yeah, yeah. And, th- and then he goes back out to his farm to carry on doing his growing the grubs thing. Okay. But obviously, he's, he's, he's been there for some considerable time. I, yeah, I, I think yeah. he's, he's been there maybe 25 years plus because he says that he was there when Rachel gave birth. Yeah. Now that is, I think, is it 2021 that she yeah, gives I think birth? Yeah, that time, wasn't so, it? So, so, so you you can then extrapolate that from 2021 to 2049. You've got 28 years that he's at least been in that location. It was pre-blackout as the yeah, anime yeah, established. Exactly. So I think he, he he has you know quite a large backstory because it even says that before he was running the farm he was a combat medic, which is how he was able to administer first aid to Rachel and the newborn child. Didn't do her much good. She it, died. It, it, well, well, we, you, well, you can see it through that. But ultimately, what was Sapper's job? Sapper's job was to get that baby out as a hope for the rebellion. And he 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 did that. Why he then went to the elaborate means that he did of putting the body in the box, then burying the box, and what have you, it's an interesting echo of human behaviour and you know sort of burial internment and what have you, but is suggestive of greater understanding and quirks within the artificial intelligence scenario. Right. Okay. David, thoughts on that? Actually, no, I'll give my own thoughts. I'm going to come in here. <laughs> <laughs> Dive right in. Uh, although, right. I, although, although, before you do that, I just want to uh, submit that the this this little prequel that explains more, I think, complicates things ever so slightly. It, do you think it so? Makes, it raises even more questions. How so? Timeline, timeline. It's supposed to take a oh. whole. Uh, it's, ta- it's it's supposed to take place a year. Uh, or you know, uh, not months. moments. It could be December. Moments. Yeah, yeah. But at the tail end of it, they say I, I I found this guy and I know where he is and I have his address. Yeah. Which which is an obvious call to the authorities to pick up a replicant. Mm. And and the movie starts with the picking up of this replicant to uh, retire him because he's illegal. Yeah. Yet the uh, the movie is implied that it takes place a year ahead of time. I think there's a um, throwaway line 
by Robin Wright's character that actually explains that, that you get the idea that at least Robin Wright's department, if not the entire Blade Runner initiative, is critically underfunded, massively under-resourced, because when they call up on the video camera, she looks at him and says, oh, you know, what happened to your head? Is that a cut? And he's like, yeah, you know. I'm not paying for that. Yeah. We, 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 exactly. I'm not paying for that. That's exactly what she says. Also, so actually, he's like, sorry, a point on the funding thing. When he was being compromised and he wasn't baseline, I know I'm jumping ahead. Instead of just retiring him, she left him loose and he yes. caused the whole thing to fuck everything up. So maybe they were like, oh shit, we need a replicant Blade Runner. We can't just retire him because they're really expensive. And that's what Wallace alludes to. I know I'm really jumping the gun. I'm going on the trail. Yeah. But Wallace is like, I can't make enough of these fuckers. That was another point. Well, it, 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 it's, a, it's a very complicated web of storyline and storytelling and uh, there's lots of assumption which is good i think i think that makes for a more interesting film when not everything is, is spelled out for you yet there are uh, a lot more questions i guess i guess fundamentally this is a great thing because you walk out of that film and you watch explanatory prequel shorts and you still have a huge amount of questions and enough to talk for hours on end and that's ultimately the point rather than disposable entertainment of course yeah, so yeah. before we go so so going back to uh, richard what you're about to dive into i think that's the effectiveness of this film is that uh it isn't so opaque that you can't figure out anything that's going on whereas it you know we're not talking about twin peaks here <laughs> <laughs> season three you know um so it, it is a little easier to follow yet there are still lots of strands where uh you can go all sorts of directions to explain how everything is interlocked and intertwined and uh either motivated and and definitively makes sense or is really tangentially or intentionally just vague right and i will just ask the two of you and with sarah martin what were your thoughts on having replicant blade runners I think it was a nice touch. It was, I mean, it was made very clear, I mm -hmm. think, within perhaps the first three or four minutes that he was a replicant because Ryan Gosling plays Officer K and Officer K goes to get uh, Sapper Morton, who is uh, played by Dave uh, Batista. And in the ensuing fight, he gets stabbed by a scalpel and not just nicked. I mean, that scalpel gets sunk right in and shakes it off and he carries on. So instantly we're told that, you know, this character is a step above human. And obviously in the Blade Runner world, that means that he's a replicant. And it then becomes quite telling because why would you use effectively artificial labor? You use it for two reasons. Number one, it's cheaper than employing a human or it's more efficient and that really then echoes something that was in the original Blade Runner because Deckard is he or is he not the point is, is that his role is as a detective and in the original Blade Runner he actually does very little detecting whereas you know and so have we got you know perhaps part of the answer that Deckard could be considered human because he does so little of his actual job <laughs> which is why we have then got we... replicants being blade runners because they are more efficient well he was reluctant in the first place he didn't want to do it he just wanted yeah. to sit at the noodle bar and uh you yeah, know they, they kind of give an ultimatum or some sort of 
catch twenty two or yeah, they, pl- they they plucked him out of uh, of of retirement pretty much, you know. I'll let you finish, but then I want to dive in. No, that was that, that was you know I I was comfortable with the idea of a replicant as a main character because i think that in much the way that last year's westworld series used artificial intelligence as their central characters we're now exploring what it is to be human through the eyes of something which is not human and it gets to the issues of what is consciousness what is the soul do these things even exist and it was interesting that you know I, th- I think some people have criticized Ryan Gosling's acting within this, that, you know, he doesn't seem to emote. And I think well, his character is the part of a replicant. And if he emotes, then he's off baseline and this is going to cause him to be shut down and all sorts, which then gives you the idea of self-preservation. And then you have an artificial creature saying, I wish to survive. It's an extension of Roy Batty's character, but from the perspective of a good guy. And these are all sort of very interesting philosophies that are coming out within the first few minutes of the movie. Hmm. Okay, David, thoughts? Well, when you're talking about rhymes or callbacks, I think it's a callback to all all five or five plus versions of Ridley Scott's film in that, is he or isn't he a replicant? Well, they're telling you right away, rather than you spending the entire movie wondering if he's a replicant or not, and even if they deliver the fact that he is a replicant, you know, you're going to say, I saw that a mile away. So they, I think, quite smartly de- determine right away that he is a replicant. And not only does does that uh, establish, that established fact makes it less of a distraction from the story. Uh, and, and it ultimately ties into this story very well that we can also get into later or now uh, because it's a Pinocchio story. Mm-hmm. And it's a story about, you know, uh, a, a fabricated being that wants to be a real boy. Right. You know, he wants yeah. to be real. Is he real or is he not? And he finds out that he might be real or not. Uh, literally, figuratively, in terms of this whole uh, procreation concept within the storyline, which okay. we'll obviously jump into as well. But I think from a practical standpoint, the fact that he's a replicant and we find that out early on is good because it makes sense because reason why replicants were they, they were they were basically made to be put in harm's way in dangerous situations and that's why they were off world and that's why they weren't allowed on earth initially and so the fact that even though replicants are outlawed at least the nexus what the nexus sevens the nexus eights uh they were all banned there was the prohibition uh the fact that you have uh replicants that can be controlled and have regular tests to determine their stability there uh you have one who is in harm's way uh regularly uh retiring other replicants and it makes sense and i think it worked right so what would be i suppose i'll pontificate a little bit the fact that k though uh, replicants are made for disposable workforce or as you know borderline slaves is the commentary the very thinly veiled mm-hmm. commentary is there um that he has his own apartment and he does get paid in cash. Uh, do you think they're giving him too much uh, of a life? Or how do you think the world actually views replicants? What vibes did you get off that? Well, he's 
he's sorry to i'll just i'll let you go martin but you know the first time you see him go home they're really angry and abusive and they call him a skin job and his he's got graffiti on his door he's there he's clearly an outcast and a pariah within the human community i'll let you go martin yeah i'll, I'll agree with that i think it, it would i would go further that it's starting to touch almost on the humanization of replicants that with each successive model or series that comes they are becoming more disagreeably human and if you watch the shorts the the very first one is called blackout which is an anime and is about the replicant rebellion because they are being treated like slaves and the idea is that as they seem to sort of achieve almost sort of a synesthesia of humanity that they have a need they they could do the borg thing they could go just stand in a cubicle and power up and what have you but clearly they need more than that in order to stop them rebelling so they give them the tokens of existence so you know they give them food they give them shelter they give them warmth both of the emotional nature and of the physical nature as well and that's something that we can touch on later because i think that the story arc with the joy character is an absolute masterpiece within absolutely. this movie that's the and, best thing about it i, Jesus, I would have said absolutely. that was a nightmare and and for, for me that is the strand that i keep coming back to and it's why my score has increased when rating this movie and so as, as we see replicants becoming more human then they have that hierarchy of wants and needs and it's interesting to see how that is still generating friction with you know humanity who now effectively operate as gods because they are the creator and okay. also i just have to jump in i know i'm sorry richard richard you don't <laughs> no. get to talk on your own podcast it's okay it's okay <laughs> the, the you know they're also uh you know while they're considered slave labor um the human populace which is overpopulated uh are res there's a tremendous resentment because their job is being taken away you know it's a parable for present day when more and more uh, people are being replaced by, you know, do-it-yourself kiosks, and you know there is no human there to to service other humans' needs, and so the resentment is there based on that fact. True that, David. Now I have one for you. We'll move on a little bit. Okay. We we actually chatted previously about this in the very first trailer, the way there was a massive Atari sign, and those who haven't listened to the last episode. You used to do sort of product placement in movies at uh -huh. one stage. Now, I have a question for you. There was lots of advertising there, and it seems to be in a world where everything is a mega corporation. And we saw Kay going to the shower. He only got a burst of water. It was nearly a throwback to Soylent Green, where they're nearly jizzing their pants when they hear there was hot water. Charlton Heston in the, that lovely apartment talking to the furniture, a.k.a. the woman of the house. That's not me being uh -huh. sexist, guys. That's the movie. Um, the Coca-Cola. Is that a luxury item now in the near in the far future? Seeing as there's no fresh veggies, there's barely any water. Is is Coca-Cola evil? Was that well-placed advertising for them? What do you think? No, no. I think uh, I think this, this is this is a society where they have all the amenities, but it's a junk food existence. Um, because anything that comes their way, whether it's food or whether it's an animal, everyone expects it to be fake and fabricated. 
So when they get some genuine something, the real deal, they're, uh, you know, perhaps that's why grubs, there's a market for grubs and people eat bugs because it, it, it represents something that's real and organic, you know? You can get, you know, there's, there's food replicated grubs that you could eat at the snack bar or you could eat organic grubs. And, you know, you, you just because they're grubs doesn't mean if they're organic, that's not enticing. And so there's even a quick scene where they're at a kiosk where they're just pressing buttons and they're getting their stuff from the vending machine. Yes, that's true. Um, yeah. So all this advertising and, and arguably, again, you go back to the great sci-fi. Great sci-fi means great parables of today and uh, consumerism. And there's the, the great argument among many great arguments uh, in our present day society that uh, all of the on-demand entertainment that we have is designed to be uh, a deflection from the nefarious deeds that are happening behind closed doors. As long as we have our Netflix, as long as we have our, our on-demand uh, AI, anything that we've got where we could check out and be distracted, whether it's food or whether it's entertainment uh, or whether it's a, some sort of experience, it's a, it's a distraction from the back channels of the the, the powers that be uh, to do what they want to do to get richer, to get more power. And we are just oblivious to that fact because we're being entertained. And so is Coca-Cola a luxury? I don't think so. I think it's, it's a daily necessity and uh, in terms of the mindset of the populace. And I think uh, just like today, Coca-Cola remains the, the, the largest uh, soft drink in the world, the most, you know, the biggest one and the number one one, uh, not because they need to advertise, yet they do advertise, right? Because mm -hmm. they want to stay there. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you could argue Coca-Cola or any company doesn't need to advertise because everyone goes to that as their first choice, yet they spend millions and millions and millions on marketing and advertising. Why? So they can remain number one. Right. Well, I have a little point on that. You see, the reason I think it was a luxury, and I would have said the grubs are a thing because different protein sources like beef, chicken, they're too time consuming. There is an argument now in the world that we should be going towards insects as a protein source. Now, it's alluded to later on. I'm jumping the gun a bit, but we can just go thematically through the different points I have here. Uh, Wallace explains, and in a bizarre twist, is giving exposition about replicants to a replicant which I thought was very silly and it was just basically for the audience but that's a matter uh, in a little while we can discuss and he says he can't make that much and if anyone there was only a few lines at the very start and they did mention that Wallace was a pioneer of artificial farming or you know he could get a lot out of farming his basis wasn't farming now he you do need proteins you do need organic sources of energy to obviously grow these replicants in a bag basically grow in the bag human um i think that natural resources and proteins and water are hard to come by in that respect because he says he can't make enough of them because there must have been finite resources and that's why i was wondering did you think coke was a luxury as you know there's a lot of water being processed there aluminium you see the junkyards and everything uh, you know the whole place is barren do you think coca-cola is a bit too much there I don't. I don't think. Sorry to jump ahead of you, Martin. If you have an answer, that's cool. But I, I think um, it's all. It's all supposition. We. I don't know. It, the the way I perceive the movie, I don't believe that there's scarcity of water. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, Dune or Mad Max. Uh, the Blade Runner world is a different world because uh, natural resources are scarce. Yes, and certain places you can't go because 
there's been, you know, the echoes of terrorism and the dirty bomb in Vegas and that yes. kind of stuff, yeah. which I think is very interesting. But it, uh, I don't believe at any point uh, the whole human population that is still on Earth is suffering and killing for water or the equivalent of a soylent green. So I didn't get that impression. I just got the impression that there's uh, people who just cannot afford to leave Earth because there's just a, a massive amount of poor individuals who can't afford to leave. And so they, they're scavengers. So, you know, you go to San Diego and you have scavengers in the world's largest junkyard, or you have the city dwellers and they're they're consuming all of the uh, the junk food goods. Yeah. Uh, however way you slice it, I don't think there's scarcity of water. I think there's scarcity of, uh, you know, if anything, I think there's plenty of fluoride because they all probably have cavities. Yes, right. Martin, I let you jump in. I have a point after you about sort of the off-world and the allure of the off-world, but Martin, yeah. jump in. Uh, I mean, obviously, I guess when, when we look at the product placement, I think that that was very much in evidence in the original i didn't feel that it was as much the case with blade runner 2049 because i felt that the signs that we saw were a continuation of the world that was established in the original and to give an example of that at several points we see the pan am logo mm. um uh, coming up now we see pan am has been and gone Mm-hmm. But yet, within the Blade Runner universe, and it is Atari, still there. Don't, don't forget. It, yeah, exactly. So, if you choose to see the product placement in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, then yes, you will see it. I observed it, but I didn't feel that it was calling to me. It just seemed to be a reminder of this is the Blade Runner universe. This is not your universe. Yeah, it's the established, you know, integration that uh i don't think anything very specifically for the for 2049 uh was was significant beyond uh thematically consistent other than the fact that there's the interaction with the with joy uh the the fact i think i think there was a the crucial moment was the fact that there's an advertisement for joy uh and she's just like the one that Kay has um everyone well, I, everyone gets one and they and and then once you get it you once you get it not her once you get it you can uh you can customize it to your heart's content to what appeals to you the most but I, it is, but I is think a, the movie turns product. on that scene I, I i i that 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 scene that you're talking about which i i think it's in the last act isn't it or, or just just in the, in the run-up to the last act right i i think that that movie turns on that scene and it's a scene that i keep going back to because i think it's so powerful because throughout the movie for the, so there's, there's this character of joy who is ryan gosling's holographic girlfriend she is in no way substantial she's not real she's got a completely artificial program and is there to give him emotional comfort but there are a number of scenes throughout the movie where she seems to take on the role of almost mystical guide there are certain aspects of obi-wan kenobi about her in that you know she points him in certain directions and leads him to certain places but yet when it comes to the absolute moment we find that joy 
is just an off-the-shelf product she there are millions like her and what's very interesting is that you know we hear joy telling officer k you're special i knew you were special but when we get to that scene where he observes the advertisements the line that jumps out is i'll tell you what you want to hear mm -hmm. and i'm like yeah. Dude, you've got two competing theories. Is Joy almost an accidental guide for the Officer K character? Has she been hacked by the Replicant Collective, which I don't think is the case? Or is Officer K's burgeoning humanity breaking through to such a level that he's seeing what he wants to see? He's just getting the messages that he wants to get in order to further his quest. And that is something that is quintessentially human. Oh, man. I, I, sorry. Yeah, go on. <laughs> Richard, Richard, you are not allowed to talk. No, Richard, do you want to go ahead or try? Uh, no, I was just going to go on a tirade against Joy, but I'll give you your moments. Like against Joy? I'm gonna, oh, my I'm gonna goodness. give you your moments of Joy to talk about Joy before I piss all over that. Well, I'll just say from the from the very beginning, uh, I my perception of Joy was that that was a product that anyone can get. And so I did not think that she was uh, special at all, other than the fact that she's a very special product. Uh, I did not believe that she was unique to uh, to Ryan Gosling's K at all. Uh, I, I definitely felt that everyone gets one, and and that was that was shown to me as as, as evident. What about if you went to the big fat Joy? What about if you like curvy Joys? Well, that's the thing. You can customize it however you want. Yeah, but was and, that the thing? She... Was it just the same template? The I can't remember the actress's name, but was that just the model and you customized the hair, the clothes? like? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. You know, it's a jumping off point. It's world building. You know, you get the impression that that's, that's the top model, literally and figuratively, that they sell mm. because she's the most appealing and you can customize her the way you want. Uh, in my in my brain, sight unseen, I'm sure there are other models available. You know, if you if you create that kind of product, you don't just sell one kind. You know, absolutely, absolutely. So, if you think about it, like a car, same chassis, different body. And so, so it's, it's gonna... same programming, just a different front end on it. Okay, Grant. absolutely. And so, so for me at least, there there was no revelation when he has a conversation with the the advertising version on the street um, who's interacting with him and trying to uh, entice him with no knowledge that he already has one. Um, and she mentions the name yeah. Joe as well, Average Joe. Yes, yeah. Average Joe. Yeah. And that's what he calls himself when he's talking to uh, Deckard later. But anyway, uh, I think... I think well, It's Joyce's character who actually names him. Yeah, that's and, it. And, and we are, we're, we're given the idea that, you know, this is a real bonding moment and it's an epiphany for the officer k character but it through this advertisement that we see he is almost deconstructed he's sent back from being a real boy back to being pinocchio because obviously joy the hologram the product says this to everybody yeah right yeah well to... i think i think the purpose that she serves ultimately especially in the beginning is to establish because we already know that he is a replicant is that uh, he is also AI, you know, uh, and he's got a learning curve. It, it, it's not the limitations of his programming. He, he's designed to learn to learn and adapt. Uh, and we don't know the, the lengths at, uh, to which he will go based on this programming, but we see evidence of what he wants and then he wants to be a human. 
he longs to be a human and so he is doing everything he can i mean you're right he could have been a borg he could have shown up into his apartment and, and stepped into a cubicle and you know looked off into the distance but he didn't he's he's trying to emulate the 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 life of a human being with companionship to the point where he is even willing to sleep with a human by way of joy it's very complicated but interesting and intriguing because he really wants to turn her into a human as well and so what that ultimately uh reinforces for this whole storyline sleeps is with a replicant he, not a human he, that was a, a, a fucking pleasure model she was in the underground did he know that she was a replicant of course he did he knew that yeah, that, that was like so, a yeah. pleasure drone. That was like okay, a pleasure okay. shop. I you're, talking to, you're talking to a guy who saw the movie once, so I can't I remember. saw it once too. <laughs> no, they, they had it like the sex shop. Like literally the it, sex shop. Okay, I missed that. So she's kind of like a priss. You know, yes. the, yeah, the, yeah, the she was hand. a priss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I figured that out later, but I think early on I missed the fact that it was obvious that she was a replicant. No, it was yeah. literally like Amsterdam fucking sex window. Okay. <laughs> that, that whole scene where he was like having coffee and they said, "Hey, tell him what does he know about the death of Dave Batista?" Where they yes, introduced yeah, her. Well, well, yeah, but he didn't. He didn't know that. And so I'm talking the point of view of him and what he knows. And uh, I, I would imagine that there are plenty of human prostitutes around because that's how you make a living. And so yeah. that's the impression I got was that I did not believe at first sight through his point of view that she was a replicant. So I stand corrected. That being said, the point is, he's looking for his humanity and he's looking to emulate it. And that's his quest for this entire uh, thing. This entire movie uh, is, is, is to determine whether he was made or whether he was born and if he's special or not, because he wants to be special and he wants to be unique as opposed to a uh, item that's been rolled out on an assembly line. Okay. I agree. David, we've, we've talked about the um lovemaking scene with joy now that we're talking about this i have a theory i want to run it past both of you before you give an instinctive reaction just take a second to think about it because i i i think that the lovemaking scene with joy answers what is at the moment the central mystery of the blade runner franchise so the mystery of the blade runner franchise is what is deckard is he human or is he a replicant? That is the mystery. And we've spoken about how sequels tend to have uh, echoes and rhymes and callbacks of its predecessor. Yes? Yes. With that in mind, we have the sex scene between Officer K, who is the replicant, and Joy, who is the hologram. Now, what we are talking about here is two different technologies perhaps even incompatible technologies getting it on yes i'm all for it yep okay given that the theme of callbacks and rhymes and echoes does it then not resolve or at least heavily imply that in blade runner the original the role of Deckard and Rachel are those of incompatible technologies. Okay, yeah, I'll take that. Well, guys, I'm going to go off on my tirade on Joy. Oh, you, you okay. Got okay. Well, wait, 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 wait. Hold. I want to hear your tirade, but I, I want to say real quick that that opens the question again: Is he a replicant or not? I don't think it. I don't think it. I think it answers it. 
because well, well, because because we we the perception we, you're saying is that he's not correct that, that he's human that he's human yes, yes. because okay. you have the theme right. of incompatible technologies right and that, right. Is, that, that is what a human and a replicant should be right i, I will i will submit that R richard gets the floor for at least 45 <laughs> minutes and then, <laughs> and then and then we need to talk about the whole procreation theme yes and, right and, and conceit of this movie okay, okay. guys right you're all on about the thematic repercussions of joy etc but as an actual vehicle to the story i just thought it was absolute cat i have a few little points um i think that whole prostitute side plot which irked me to the nth degree because the scene that you missed david where it was basically a case of oh tail that guy and see what he knows about the death of dave Testa. now that was the start of that side plot and we didn't know exactly what they were, but we knew they were replicants. We didn't know the extent of the whole movement. Then they go completely out of the picture. We have Joy stringing along Kay and telling him what he wants to hear. And they also make mention that, oh, you need to get me out of the terminal because they can track me. So I'll go back to that. But then Joy seemingly out of nowhere this was like the most crowbarred plot point, essential plot point actually. Joy, by her own volition, rings up the prostitute. And the only way that prostitute could have gotten her way was that Joy rang her. She didn't do anything to further her own agenda. She didn't sweet talk Kay to get him back in. It was all Joy. Now you did allude, Martin, that were they controlling, were the underground controlling Joy? Possibly that would be a stronger argument for this being able to happen. But the prostitute coming over to be able to put the tracker on Kay's jacket just because Joy rang her because of one interaction was a little stretch too far for me on that one. I'll let you just date on that. Um, I, I don't agree. And the reason I don't agree is because the original view that we have of joy is that she is not an artificial intelligence she is a virtual intelligence she has a certain set of parameters that she operates within but there isn't a degree of learning that we see with the replicants but throughout this and throughout the relationship that she develops you know the way that that she names him you know that you know we're seeing this almost become you know, from a master-servant relationship to a genuine love story, I think in that turn, she is actually transcending her programming to become an artificial intelligence and gain a semblance of humanity. And the reason that she uh, calls up that prostitute is because she says, I know that you like her. No, but the whole fucking issue was, no, out, of all the, out of all the prostitutes, she fucking rings up on her own volition and the only way the subplot of the resistance finding him the mm. only way that was forwarded was joy out of pure divine inspiration and she wanted to be human for Kay invited the prostitute up there was because nothing she, before because, then because she wants to please him yeah, but that was, is her was, role yeah but that is joy wanting to please him but yes. the prostitute herself couldn't afford the agenda of what he knew unless Joy just rang yes. her randomly. So that was uh, yeah. a stretch because, too far. It no, was just no, deus ex machina. Because she she knows that, you know, well, she, she believes that he that he likes her. But that it was a throwaway one scene. It wasn't as if she was like tailing him and had a, a couple interactions. It actually would have made more sense for me if Kay was 
pushing Joy away and got the prostitute, but then maybe Joy butted in and said, oh yeah, I can, you know, interact a little bit more, and then he keeps shutting off Joy or something like that. But to move on, once... Well, isn't there a scene later, and this is sort of apples and oranges, but along the same vein, where Joy is ultimately killed because they crush her, her transmitter. Yes, I wanted to actually mention yet, that because... Yet she, yet she appears fine later. And so there's this, this dramatic moment, don't kill her, don't kill her, she's gone, and then she's back later and it's all good. No, that was that was just the display model, I would have said. It wasn't actually Joy. So, because Joy, um, Kay's Joy, appears to be in two places simultaneously, which then suggests that her actual program is perhaps cloud-related. So we, we see her in this form of a holographic projector that runs up and down his room yeah yeah right and and then as a gift to her and perhaps you know to you know state his own emotion needs he gets a remote transmitter thereby right. giving her freedom and what have you but all right you know but so we've almost got these two simultaneous iterations of joy being broadcast through competing technology yeah. which then gives the idea of that yeah it could be the same joy if these uh, technologies are drawing from a single source being the well, cloud and yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she gets her freedom I, I guess my point is i didn't i didn't articulate it very well what i'm ultimately saying is they make a big deal out of the fact that she's crushed and she's gone and she you know sort of disappears and dies but i felt zero emotion based on the fact that i know that she's cloud-based yeah you know that, that that's just a that's just a portable version so i wouldn't you know i wouldn't be upset because she doesn't live and die within that stick but just that, just to finish my point on that she had most of the information joy was with k all the time so why did love have to take Deckard away? Why didn't she pick up Joy and then use the data? Because they had already established that she was eavesdropping on Kay's Joy when they smashed the transmitter. They literally snap cut to love being like, fuck, and then they started tailing him. I just thought the whole Joy vehicle was very badly executed. The fact the whole underground resistance movement couldn't have existed without just Deus Ex Machina, Joy deciding she'd ring a prostitute there was no way of affording that that was very bad and uh that just like really fucking pissed me off and why didn't they just use the data from joy in the stick and also just jumping on again on the decker train are you telling me that fucking giant headquarters didn't have a torture room where the fuck were they flying decker to tell me <laughs> fucking hell they were, well, no, they, were, they were flying decker off world weren't they so that that is an analogy for the you know the cia black camps isn't it so you know cia have got these you know camps in you know eastern europe and the balkans and wherever else that they can you know extraordinary re re rendition and whatever goes on there isn't illegal because it's not on american soil this is just the same thing just extrapolated outwards he's, he's being taken off world because to do the things they want to do to deckard on earth would be illegal yeah but, but the wireless yeah. corporation is a big massive fortress like no one's gonna go in are you telling me they don't have a torture room he literally has a room filled with a fucking pond and low lighting even though he's fucking blind are you telling me they don't have a torture room <laughs> Well, we're, we're not actually told that he's blind. To be honest, the, the, the role of Jared Leto is entirely redundant through his entire movie. You could chop out all his scenes and just have love coming through a doorway saying, you know, Mr. Wallace says he wants 
X, yeah, Y, Z. That, I actually had a point, right? Why in the fuck, if they're painting the off-world as the best thing since sliced pan, or Coca-Cola in the case of the universe we're in, why the fuck is Wallace on Earth? Why is he even there? He is well, so redundant, doing, as you he's say. He's doing the Lord's work. He's doing. He, he's creating angels. Yeah, and he's, and he's a factory trying to uh, push his agenda forward by uh, creating a, a race of better and better and more efficient replicants. Um, my my... I, I, my biggest problem with his character was there was no Dunumont. There was no he he appears he's he's a force to be reckoned with. He's clearly a tremendous influence on the world, uh, and then he's he and and he enjoys playing God. Yes, that's his, that, that's his yeah. kink. Okay, his kink. right. Moving he on from that, right? Yeah. There's right. The, there's the two. But, but we don't see him again. He disappears. He sort of shows up. Yeah. Uh, he's he's a completely mental version of Steve Jobs. That's yeah, what yeah. He is. But there's there's two converging paths, right? Wallace needs to know the last secret of Tyrell of how to get procreation because he needs to make more. He said into the trillions, not millions. Then there's the converging path of the Resistance want procreating replicants if the resistance got their way and overturned wallace how would having children even help them because number one how would they go about making them to begin with to have a population that they could be replicant only they'd have to hold the wallace corporation at gunpoint it's a little like i thought it was a little bit of a stretch i didn't think thematically it added much to humanity honestly, rich i don't understand because i'm kind of saying like how would ha being able to have children help the replicants? Well, it, 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 can, because... it, can, it can increase their numbers. Yeah. But how, uh, but how are they going to let that happen? How is there going to be enough okay, reproducing Rich... replicants come in, is what I'm yeah, asking. Yeah, but it comes straight down to fucking. That's what it comes down to. If if the replicant army can fuck and reproduce... Well, it's, it's not a switch. They have to, they have to be able to produce replicants that can replicate, essentially. Right. Well, so well, the ones that are there are all think, sterile. This is ultimately, I think, the biggest problem that I had with this film overall um, was this whole central theme of procreation and the fact that that replicants can can produce life from the you know the microscopic stage of of conception. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, uh, in the very beginning, uh, Bautista's character says that it was a miracle. Yeah. So we're talking about an anomaly. Uh, you know, this is, no, this... we're, we're, we're talking about something that he has seen for the first time and that he believes could not be. Now, you know, there's, there's a, I think it's Arthur C. Clarke uh, saying that, you know, uh, any sufficiently adv uh, advanced technology will appear as magic. And that's what he's talking about there. This is advanced technology. To him, it is going against everything that he knows but yet it still happens and therefore he believes it is a miracle okay all right fair enough i'll accept that explanation i i, I that was my problem with the whole movie though is i could not i could not suspend my disbelief and wrap my brain around the fact that that these robots let's use that word are capable of of creating new life um i can understand them making new robots but to create, uh, you know, an, an embryo that grows into a uh, a fully adult human, uh, I could not wrap my brain around that. I just couldn't buy it. And the fact that it was established as a quote-unquote miracle, um, at least when I was watching it, you know, your explanation works for me. 
uh, in that connotation. But for me, I just thought to myself, well, if this is a miracle that just somehow happened, and now they're trying to track down the uh, the the source of this process so it can be mass produced, uh, I, it seems to have happened on its own, according to the context of the story. And that's the spark of life that I just didn't buy. Yeah, well, replicants to me were always just better, faster, stronger versions of humans just with an expiration date. And they were More sterile. Yeah, so, sorry, yeah. Can, can, I, can I just go back? So, David, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, was that Tyrell engineered Rachel to be childbearing. Yes, yeah. Yes, in, yes. in, in 2049, they established that. Yes. So, you know, obviously... At the end of Blade Runner, Harrison Ford sort of you know swans off into the sunset, and I think you know, quite rightly, people say, well, you know, what sort of life can they have? Yeah, as a couple, you know, who will presumably be barren, and you know, that then sort of gets an interesting kink at the beginning of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. But it, you know, to, to it, it's effectively retconned that Tyrell developed Rachel almost as a prototype to be the first replicant who could bear children. And and in the original Blade Runner, they say that she's a very special model. Yes. Uh, and so they leave that up for interpretation. And so that it could easily fit into this mold of what they are telling as an entire story in 2049. But uh, as they as they, they they ride off into their ground into the sunset in their grounded spinner, they ultimately don't expect to have children because they don't believe they can. So when they do have children, uh, they realize that they're not only are they pariahs from from society, they also realize that they are very dangerous because of this capability. And that's why Rick Deckard goes through great lengths to abandon his child reluctantly because it was for the child's own protection. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, that, yeah. and that's how it all ties into uh, K, uh, the the red herring of K being what he believes to be Deckard's child, and then learns that he's not uh, throughout the the course of the story. Can can I uh, just offer? So there, there there was something that annoyed me in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and that is the false memory that Kay has, which is the hiding of this little toy horse and what have you. Do you think that it would have had significantly greater impact that instead of being a little wooden horse, it would have been a little wooden unicorn? Yes, it had to be a unicorn. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, it's not just me. Yes, no, I thought, really? They're, they're so close. Why are they yeah. not just making it a unicorn? Yeah. Also, on that little point. That's a wasted opportunity. The Our buddy Almus making his little cameo. What do you think of that? Edward yeah, James Almus. I thought it was lip service, but I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I loved how, you know, uh, he's true to his character and he delivers. Well, here's, a, here's another problem, though. Sorry. I'm already going on tangents, 18 in my head. But, you know, he's there for a purpose, and he's there to reveal where is Deckard. And where is Deckard is that he reveals it by delivering a piece of cryptic origami. And what does he deliver? He delivers a sheep, right? Mm -hmm. So it's livestock. (laughs) Well, there you go. Well, I think you're on to something. I think think, uh, 
I'm talking about callbacks and rhymes, you know, it, it, it might be an electric sheep. But the thing is, it, it's implying that he knows where Deckard is. And Deckard, Deckard went into the uh, into the green lands of, of, of the beyond. For 40 the years and 40 nights. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's not where he is. So it sort of is either a misdirection or a... a, a a lie or it, it does not it's not relevant to where you can ultimately find Deckard because he puts this down saying this is where you find him right find you know find the sheep you'll find Deckard and you don't find him anywhere you know he should have done a origami Elvis and it would have worked better excellent well guys I know uh, one of us probably two of us now at this stage is running out of time I'm going to have to <laughs> ask for the closing remarks I know we probably have a lot more to say but Time just wasn't uh, good for us at this stage. Time is of the essence with the release of this episode. I hope to have it out tomorrow, uh, just for the two V. David, I'll start with yourself. What will your what is your overall score for the movie? My biggest disappointment, I have to add before I give you my score, is that uh, the moment they established the classic spinner that's sitting in Deckard's uh, house or apartment, mm. as soon as you see it, they destroy it. That really bothered me. That that was a great opportunity where they could have had a spinner chase, yeah. old versus new, right? Wouldn't that yeah. have been awesome? Yeah, yeah. So what's what's our rating system? Please remind me. Uh, it's just out of five stars. Out of five stars, I'd give it a four and a half, and the half is the uh, uh, the minus half star is for the convoluted nature of so many ideas where some are brilliant others are half-baked and i ultimately didn't buy the central conceit yet as a overall film i found it to be compelling thought-provoking visually spectacular and i really enjoyed the fact that they made this movie as opposed to regretting sitting and and cringing super martin how do you feel about it i'm i'm gonna go with the same score i am gonna say 4.5 i am gonna say that this is a deeply philosophical movie do not go and see this movie if you want an all-action shooter because you will be disappointed do expect to come away not having all the answers and being able to sit down and talk it through with your nearest and dearest your friends for me the weak points the visuals i felt there wasn't anything special in them. I think we've seen it all before, certainly since Fifth Element, Valerian and everything else. I didn't really get on with the soundscape quite so much. There's a definite deduction of points for the use of Jared Arsehole Leto. Seriously, <laughs> Hollywood, get the fuck over yourself. The man's an arsehole. Um, and there was clearly some shots where there was caving to Ridley Scott and the overuse of fucking orange. So can we just knock that out? That said, I thought the acting was strong. I think I would genuinely like to see this up for some gongs. In particular, I think Robin Wright did an amazing job as Lieutenant Joshi, and I think her death scene was just fantastic. Yeah, I was, was great. absolutely blown away by it. A um, little bit mystified as to how Harrison Ford gets second billing on this movie when it takes two hours for him to show up. But there is a lot in this movie. It is a long movie. Take some popcorn with you. 
be prepared to talk about it be prepared to go and see it a second time because you will get a lot out of it 4.5 definitely watch it again okay and one thing we didn't touch upon at all that uh, we'll obviously have to just think about is the fact that we do get to see rachel and when you say that harrison ford gets second billing i think it would have been wonderful if harrison ford got no billing and, yes, and yes. was not advertised in this movie at it would all have been way then, better Way that would have been spectacular. They did the hint at the tape Deckard. at the start. Yeah, and the fact that you get to see uh, a young Rachel was a real treat that I didn't know anything about, and I think that elevated the experience for me as well. Great yeah. stuff. Very well, nice. guys, for, well, Richard, once, what's your... for yeah. once, actually, I'm going to be giving less than Martin. Ooh, I'm coming in with maybe two and a half, three. Wow. Oh, that's brutal. Uh, that's brutal. I, I, I can sum it up in kind of three words it's like superfluous and visually stunning um superfluous I, yes superfluous I, I think right hear me out hear oh. me out visually <laughs> stunning next fight to Dublin <laughs> kick your ass visually stunning great score I thought the story fell flat in its face once they introduced Deckard I thought it was absolutely ham-fisted crowbarring in of Deckard uh, I think thematically uh, it didn't add anything to the commentary that was established 35 years ago it really didn't add much in terms of the extra length they went to was oh bearing children as opposed to having a normal life uh, I think they answered enough questions and there's been stuff like Westworld since which has actually done a better job on the narration between AI and robots and that's where it kind of fell down to me I thought the revelations with Kay and the red herring was just a little bit oh there was a groan Jared Leto was like again didn't need to be there absolutely redundant um, yeah uh, but I did enjoy watching it you have to ask yourselves if it wasn't plastered Blade Runner and it was just a normal sci-fi movie would it have done so well I think it wouldn't have and that's why I'm giving it a 3 it would have been called a, the live action adaptation of Ghost in the Shell yes, yes. yeah exactly and I, I, mean, th- I think I, I think this, there, this, I, this, I'll, this I'll should just have been Ghost in the Shell Mm. If, if if they'd put as much thought into the script for the Ghost in the Shell movie, then I think we would be talking about Ghost in the Shell about being a general award candidate instead of the travesty that was put out for it. Exactly. Well, Ghost, Ghost in the Shell, when I watched that, all I wanted to do was say, well, I can't. Good thing that the Blade Runner sequel is coming around this year. <laughs> yeah. Well. And I, I also want to submit, I know this is a complete other tangent, but uh, I, I see a pattern in terms of, of sci-fi entertainment that is is coming back over and over when you're talking about Blade Runner, when you're talking about Westworld. You could also start talking about Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. um, who's a Cylon, who's not. You know, it, it, it's the modern day parable of um, sleeper cells and, and turncoats and double agents yes, and yeah. spies where we live in a world now where the person next to you may or may not be a terrorist and you just don't know. And so that's what's compelling about the uh, the what if scenarios about all of these films in sci-fi is that it, it's a parable for today's uh, paranoia that we have on a daily basis, sadly. Interesting, because I got something completely different from it. I understand what you're saying there, David, and I agree with aspects of that interpretation. But there's that moment when they're in Las Vegas and Officer K looks at Deckard and looks to the dog and says to Deckard, is it real? Mm-hmm. Deckard shrugs and says, you ask him. Because <laughs> it, it almost it almost doesn't matter. It's about what is it 
to be human. And I think that's what the movie's asking. In the same way that Battlestar Galactica... But it asked it in the exact same way as the first movie. That's my problem. It was no, like... No, but, 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 no, but, but then what is it to be human? You know, what defines our humanity? Is it mercy? Is it forgiveness? Is it compassion? What is it that defines our humanity? And this is what the exploration of the movie is. And almost it is, you are what you think you are. If you get back to the central mystery, what is Deckard? Don't think Deckard knows what he is, but it doesn't matter because he's still capable of demonstrating humanity, as is Officer K, as is Joy, and the rest of them. Yeah, actually, anything, sorry, just one. The, the humans are more inhuman than the inhuman. very much. They've they've transcended. They've become vengeful gods. I'm actually just going to throw out one little small thing that pissed me off, and you you don't have to rebut me on this. The, the classic sci-fi <laughs> trope of the older model beating the new model a la Terminator where uh, K beats yeah, Love, well, that, that really pissed me off. I'll, I'll give you that. I, I will I give you that. I didn't think about that. I didn't even, you know, I didn't, I didn't think that, yeah. All right, guys. I will give you that, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. David, where can we find you online, sir? Uh, you can find me online. Uh, go to itcamefromblog.com and then all my social media stuff. You can find me on uh, at itcamefromblog, whether you're on uh, Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Uh, and I'm also on uh, Twitter as Tiki Ambassador. Excellent stuff. Martin, where can we find you? You can find me in Amazon and all good bookshops and some shit ones too. Um, <laughs> look for The Spirals of Danu. Danu spelled D-A-N-U. I'm on Twitter as Spirals of Danu. I'm also on Facebook as Spirals of Danu. So hit me up there. Tell me how wrong I am and um, I shall educate you. Excellent stuff, guys. That will all be in the show notes. So, guys, thanks very much for coming on. I will love you and leave you, and I'm pretty sure I'll have you on again at some stage. I think Star Wars is coming up. I might pencil you in for that if you are yeah, well, looking forward to it. Thank you for having us on, and next time we'll let you talk more. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much, guys. Enjoy the evening, and we'll talk again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. End of line.